Hello everyone to a new conversation about software engineering. Today is the third and last episode of our three-part series uh, on service level objectives with Alex Premley, site reliability engineer at Google, and he's also the author of the open source art of SLO training. In this last episode, we are going to cover error budget policies. We talk about developing, communicating, and sharing error budget policies. And we will discuss alerting, especially alerting on service level objectives. We're you know, looking rather at uh, your burn rate on an error budget, whatever that means, we are going to discuss that. We're not looking at uh, single uh, individual problems causing alert fatigue. All right, please enjoy our last episode. We're talking about um, yeah, measurements. Uh, I, I already asked, you know, how to, um, how to do the, uh, to, to decide if, the, if, if I met my SLO or not, if I have synthetic clients. Um, that's, uh, that was one thing I asked, but is there also, um, do, what do I need to think of if it gets uh, even more complicated? Uh, if I have multiple types of clients, like I have a web browser or a mobile and a mobile phone, or maybe even an IoT device, like Netflix has uh, different kinds of devices talking to their to their uh, API, then I need to I possibly need to measure uh, multiple endpoints, like you know. The browser returns HTML, but the, there is also an API uh, endpoint for the mobile and I I IoT device returning uh, JSON. And um, this is also true for use cases which require multiple actions, for example, a checkout process of a, of a web shop. Um, how do I uh, calculate SLOs for multiple endpoints? Uh, I, so I, I, th I think this is the problem here isn't so much the calculating of lots of SLOs, but um, you're getting you're getting a lot of information overload that's coming from measuring things in such a fine-grained manner. So um, let's deal with the specifics of the question first. I think like um, measuring an individual endpoint, it may be too fine-grained when it's possible to have tens or even hundreds of them. If you've got a lot of endpoints that serve related traffic at similar request rates, you can probably group them together for measurement purposes. So say um, I, I give an example for this. It's not in the art of SLOs because um, we had to really cut that down for the purposes of getting the theory part done in the morning. But the the longer uh, SLO training that CRE gives uh, the customers that we work with, we have an example from the Play Store, which I worked on, um, that uh, just goes into how we created SLO buckets for certain types of requests. And so... Um, we had uh, a browse bucket which contained um, people looking at the details pages, people looking at the um, the like the front page, and people trying to search for particular I, like things on the Play Store because like those are the, the if you want to get to a particular piece of content, those are the the things you're generally going to be doing, and they all have relatively similar request request weights because people hit the front page and then they either click on a details thing, a detail of an app or um, a book or a, a movie or whatever they want to they want to buy, or they search for what they want because they know what they're looking for, and like those they're all within an order of magnitude similar request rates. They are all served by the same underlying set of jobs apart from search which obviously has a, a more specialized thing um and so and they also all fail at relatively similar rates 
so you can just take the um, the requests and responses and sum everything together and have an SLO for the browse bucket, uh, as opposed to having like four or five different SLOs for the four or five different endpoints, which are doing relatively similar things. Mm-hmm. So that that's one way of approaching it. Like you can cut down the number of SLOs you have, so you're not getting so information overloaded by trying to find patterns of similar things and uh, aggregating them together. But I think sometimes a better approach is to have an SLO that covers covers a particular use case start to finish. Like I, I mentioned before that uh, the synthetic clients, you'd have one that tried to go through the whole um, checkout process from start to finish. So it would load the front page of your shop. It would uh, do a search for a particular item or navigate to a particular item. And then it would attempt to stick it in the cart, and then it would attempt to buy it with a fake credit card that would be recognized by your system. Uh, and that that kind of thing gives you, it, it tests everything in a similar way that a user would test it. So it's it, in some ways, it's more a, a more accurate representation of the user experience. No, no, that's true. Um, what you really want to know there is whether a user encountered an error during the entire process, right? The, this takes more effort to set up. And like, if you if you don't have a synthetic client doing it, you probably have to do some kind of uh, uh, after-the-fact session reconstruction from your logs, which can make mm. real-time measurements harder. But it, this, this more ac- accurate understanding of your customer experience means that um, you don't have to worry so much about the multiple all of, all of tracking all of the multiple endpoints separately like instead of having the so what we we said the front page the the details page the search the add to cart and then the checkout and then probably there's a like confirmation so that's six different potential handlers which you're cut, taking down into one like higher level user journey and really it's whether that people can successfully complete that user journey that you care about Now, talking more generally, like once you start dicing your SLOs into d- dimensions like client type, things your the number of things you're measuring can really snowball quite quickly. Like you're you're always you're doing a, like a product a cross product of all of the different uh, dimensions, and I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. Like f- first, like do you really care about the dimensions? Sometimes it's it can just be fine to pretend everything is equal rather than sliced up on, along a particular dimension or to avoid creating an SLO for a specific type of traffic because it's just it's just not important enough. Like, say, if you know that like 90% of the traffic to this handler is like um, Googlebot scraping your service or something like that, then maybe it's not such a big deal. Um, and if, you're, if you are sure that you need your SLOs broken down like this, then try to avoid considering more than one dimension at a time in each SLO. So if you're, you, you talked about, uh, like, or did you talk about, I don't know, <clears throat> Sorry, um, it was. Uh, I have a mobile client, and I have uh, a web browser, and I potentially have some IoT uh, device, for yeah. example. Okay, so th- those are all. That's kind of one dimension. That's the client type, say. But if you, mm-hmm. if you, you, you also mentioned multiple endpoints. So your second dimension is server endpoints, and like maybe you care about what country your users in, or something like that as yeah, well. Yeah. But the resulting cardinality when you combine all of these three things is massive. Like. Do you really want to measure as SLO specifically for your mobile users hitting the ad cart endpoint from Germany? <laughs> maybe you do. Maybe yeah. maybe specifically those users are having a real problem. Um, but like, if that's the case, it's probably only going to be a transient thing because you've got a bug for those specific users, and so you don't need to measure an SLO long term for that 
very small particular cohort. You want to have some way of spinning up like temporary monitoring so you can track the progress of fixing the bug and then you just kind of throw it away again afterwards. Or you, you track the metrics, but you don't turn them into an SLI. Because you don't, like, SLIs are for very specific things. You, I'm not saying you should replace all of your monitoring with SLIs. That's, like, that's not going to help, help you. Because SLIs just tell you that something is wrong. And you need all the, other, mm. all the other metrics to tell you what's wrong and really dig into the details. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's something uh, which... Um... I think it's sometimes confusing because I, you know, I heard in the past here and there, you know, just if you have your, uh, if you just have your only measure your SLOs, so to speak, and the rest, you know, it magically works, but that's uh, not, you know, that's not how it's, how it works. No, definitely not. No, um, no. like the SLOs, um, it's giving you a, like a reduced problem space, uh, especially for your operations teams. They like, you should be able to translate translate directly from an SLO to a particular group of users being harmed for a particular thing. And then it, it should be enough information to like reduce where they need to go and look in the systems to go and find where the bug is and find the cause. Mm. SLOs should be like, they should be symptoms based. They should be close to your users and close to your user's experience. And the further, you, the closer you are to user experience, generally the further you are away from the root cause of whatever the problem is. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, so from from the measuring perspective, um, yeah, all my, my questions are answered. I, I did have uh, just I, one more thing yeah. I wanted to say. Uh, like, okay. I, we, I know we're skipping a couple of bits, but um, the, la the last thing, because it pertains to SLO, SLOs rather than SLIs, is that it's try not to have lots of different SLO goals and, and for example, latency thresholds. Like, everyone has a preference for round numbers. So... Find the nearest like hundred or five hundred milliseconds and stick to stick to those across all of your SLOs. It will make it easier to mm. move about for everyone. And like yeah. similarly, like we we always tend to use like a round number of nines, like three nines or four nines or maybe three and a half nines. But st if you choose stick to all of these, then people will be able to reason about your data more easily because it's not like they have to go and check out, oh, well, this particular SLO has a, like a goal of two and a half nines or like 99.8% <laughs> for this one because like reasons. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's, I think that's a valuable extra thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I can easily, uh, uh, second that, uh, because, um, in, you know, my, my first attempt with SLOs was too fine grained, and uh, have, you know, having different endpoints had different uh, numbers, and then um, yeah, you, I confused a lot of people because you know why has this endpoint? I'm just you know I, I can't remember in detail, but you know this endpoint has 150 milliseconds, and the other one has 250 and stuff like that, and it was really confusing for everyone, and yeah, eventually uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's. I think uh, that's a very common thing. Like, it, because it's a process of iteration. Like, all through this, I've been recommending that you start with things like load balance metrics, which are there already. And the thing about that is, like, it's they're quite seductively easy. It's quite seductively easy to um to break down by endpoint because the load balance metrics automatically do that for you. Like, well, okay, let's let's look at this dimension because it's there and it's easy. But um, uh, the thing to remember is that uh, you've got to be trying trying to take it back to the user experience every time and like mm. uh, the your user 
doesn't care about the endpoint that they're hitting. They care about seeing the web page and like doing the thing, like buying the thing, right? Uh, so I think load balancer metrics and looking at individual endpoints is a great place to start, but um, there's got to be some kind of iteration process towards having SLOs that cover a user journey at some point, because those, those are the higher level things that your users actually care about. Like what goal are they trying to accomplish with your service? All right. Um, yeah, shifting gears a little bit uh, again. So now we, we know uh, how and what to measure and uh, how to report. And so now I, I look at my, at my measurements and, you know, uh, if I'm lucky, I'm within my SLO, you know, I met my requirements, but um at some point, I will fail to meet my SLOs. And it is good to be prepared and get an agreement before that happens to know what needs to be done next. Yeah. yeah. So the SRE book recommends uh, an error budget policy. So could you describe what an error budget policy is? What, what are its parts and so on? Sure, no problem. Um, it, it just so happens that I, I wrote a three-part blog series on this on the CRE Life Lessons blog on the topic on this topic a couple of years ago, and I'm, and I'm sure all of your listeners are avid readers of the CRE blog. But uh, <laughs> I'm happy I'm happy to go over it again for the few people who haven't been keeping up with all of our output. Um, I also I will also put the links in the in the show notes, you know, for more detailed reading. Cool, thank you. Um, but um, if you need to, people need to find it, like searching for CRE life lessons will get you to a lot, uh, all of the all of the things. So, one of the the major goals when you're creating an SLOs for a service is to have that feedback loop that we talked about um, that regulates the pace of change to so that you're keeping the service reliable enough. But you can't have this regulation happen. The feedback loop doesn't really work unless there are consequences when the service is out of SLO. So we've talked about the SLO being the dividing line between your happy customers and your unhappy customers. And I've kind of also talked about the it being the dividing line between having engineering resources working on, um, I don't know, having people. I hate the term resources when it's like, actually, <laughs> there are fundamentally, there are human beings doing the things here, right? But that having people working on the new features that the company needs or improving the reliability so your users are happy still. And the thing here is like it, it, I talk about the dividing line, but it's never it's never as clear cut as that. We we said you know the, you you don't have like at four hundred ninety eight milliseconds everybody's happy and five hundred two milliseconds everybody's unhappy. You don't have that kind of black and white thing. Like in the same in the same vein, like your company, it doesn't have a black and white thing where um like in one, on the one hand one hundred percent of the work is on features and on the other hand one hundred percent of the work is on reliability, like. And even when you're way out of SLO, there's there's always going to be some feature work happening. And even when a service is operating well within its SLOs, uh, it's sometimes well worth doing some proactive reliability work to reduce the risk of future outages. So when you're writing an error budget policy, you're kind of trying to describe how your company should make this shift of engineering effort towards improving reliability for a service based on the past SLO performance over the like the last 28 days, over the last quarter, over, maybe even just over the last hour. And the, you, you're completely right that you want to have this prepared and agreed in advance because having it, having it written down and approved by people with decision-making power means that everyone has the same understanding of what's going to happen when it happens. 
when your SLOs are missed and what the consequences are of this not happening. And the, the last thing you want when you're in the middle of a big outage is having people arguing about what should be happening. Everyone should be focused on making the outage stop, mitigating it mm. so that your users aren't harmed. And if you're having a political argument about whether it's right to roll back or who's going to be doing the bug, fixing the bugs, then you're not helping your users at that point. And I, I think it's really helpful when the policy starts well before your first SLO is missed, like your your twenty eight day, like long term SLO is missed. I think the 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 first place you should start is by saying what triggers an operational response, because really the first the first change in stance towards reliability is someone in your operations organization getting paged and going to investigate a problem, right? Like. Your your service mm. is was reliable, and now your monitoring systems are telling you it's no longer reliable enough, and somebody needs to go do something. So that's that is a change in stance towards reliability, right? Beforehand, that that operations person was carrying on with their operations, their their project work. They were, you know, trying to make tomorrow better than today. Now the monitoring systems are telling them today is not good enough. Go do something to fix it. So yeah. <clears throat> one of the reasons I like to start here is because um, it makes it clear to say, like if you've got a split a split um, responsibility where you have a separated operations team and development team, uh, it makes it clear to the development team like what responsibilities the oper operations team has and how much how much work they have to do before they can say, okay, this is this is now a reliability bug. I need you to stop feature work to do some something to fix it. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's also um, good for product owners, you know, because usually a product owner or product management, they do not really know how to prioritize uh, work, which is not related to, which is not feature work. You know, if it's architectural work, reliability work, it's not so easy to prioritize. But if you have the requirement in, in uh, you know, as an SLO, and you missed it, then it's. I think it's easy for easier for them to then understand. Okay, I'm about to miss it, so now I need to invest more time into reliability. So now, I have um, I have a theory on this. Um, so operations folks tend to only be considering things from the oh we've got to we've got to fix the we've got to make reliability better. We've got um, and. Product folks are often thinking about things and just in terms of, oh, well, I need to get this feature shipped. Really, um, the, the, to kind of harmonize these two views, I think it's best to couch both of them in terms of keeping the user happy or making the user happier. Like you've got this kind of spectrum of user happiness and mm. um, operations folks are generally, I need to make the user less unhappy, thinking about, I need to make the user less unhappy because I am responding to this outage and I am trying to stop the, the SLO burn. But, and the product folks are thinking, I need to make the user more happy by designing this delightful new feature that will make their life easier. But when you think about it in these terms, like uh, if you can bring everything down to like an increment or decrement in the happiness of your users, you can make trade-offs against like feature work and reliability work. So um, yeah. if you can, if you can uh, phrase your reliability work in terms of, I think this will increase our users' happiness by this much, then you can, your product person can say, well, okay, I think my feature is only going to increase the happiness of users this much. I can see that there is a lot of harm to users happening because this, this reliability work isn't fixed, so I can, I can then prioritize the reliability work 
above the feature work because like it has more of an impact to the happiness of our users. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's an interesting. It's it sounds so simple to just say you know take the perspective of your user, of course, but. <laughs> We are all living in our silos and we are only seeing our stuff and we rarely look at uh, yeah, our users as a whole and say, okay, you know, maybe our users need less of the stuff I'm building right now. They need more of the things other people do. So, you know, I, you know, I, I hold back with my requirements because my requirements are not as important as maybe other requirements. It's, it's, difficult. Uh, it's, it's especially difficult, yeah. I think, for product folks when you know they've been wank, banging away on the, the the design and the iteration of this product, and they really they fundamentally believe that it's going to make great great things for the users. And then to have a, an outage come along and everyone to go, well, actually, we've got to make our users happy by just fixing these problems first. It's got to be it's got to be pretty painful to see, but like for, for the users, it's. May, it may still be better. Like it's it's a difficult mm. thing to do to let to let go of something that you've been holding dear for a long time, trying to get released for a while. Because actually, it's better for every, the users if you focus on other things. And I, I can see that being difficult. Yeah. No, I think so. And uh, but I mean, you have to start somewhere. And uh, I think it's an it's a simple but it's a simple idea. But I'm not. What is it? Simple but not easy. That's I think that's the yes. There's a lot of politics the involved. Yeah, and, and no one ever thinks politics is easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, error budget policy, good thing to have. Um, who is so someone has to create it, and who is involved uh, creating an error budget policy? How do I do that? It's it can be difficult. I think um, you, there's a. It's important to involve everyone who's kind of got some responsibility for the product or towards the users or like towards keeping the service reliable. So usually you'll have stakeholders in like the operations organization, the development organization, the product folks, and I, it's critical to have an executive sponsor as well. I think because when there are differences of opinion as to like what is the highest priority like say you've got a product the product person can't quite let go of their their feature and is refusing to prioritize the reliability work because they want to get the feature out of the door um but you know you're out of slo you you don't want they like that can be a, a really bad political situation because like you're going to have two competing views of what is the most important thing and you need to have a single person mm. who is um empowered and equipped to make a decision there and ideally it, the decision should come from enforcing the policy so your policy should in this situation where you've got two competing interests and the policy should say like clearly what is going to happen and the person who's making the decision just has to like say look the policy says this this is what's happening and eventually like people will stop having to go to that like executive sponsor to enforce it because they'll know that the policy is just going to be enforced like blanket enforced mm. without any any questions no. <clears throat> but well when you're starting off like it, it usually comes down to but the policy doesn't apply to me in this particular case does it surely not like those kind of questions and so it's, it's important to have someone with the executive power to enforce it 
for those kind of things when they crop up. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. also a thing. You know, it, it sounds uh, simple, but uh, getting someone with executive power and convincing that person, uh, you know, to stop maybe developing features and uh, concentrate on reliability, yeah, could be a difficult thing. Yeah, um, I agree. I think I think it, it is one of the most difficult things, in fact. Um, because of this, like we've kind of talked about it. It usually comes down to the same things as um, the product folks. Like they, they, they need to see it in terms of the user happiness, and that like it all. Like you can also put it in terms of the reputational damage to the company. We've talked a lot about user trust at the start of this, and I mm, think um, mm. like the ex someone who's like an executive for a, a company should have some understanding of the reputational costs of an outage like and especially say say you're an operations person you're trying to like create your first uh, error budget policy you're trying to get buy-in from someone in a leadership role like if you have data from post-mortems that can show well this outage cost the company this many dollars this outage cost the company this much in user trust and engagement over the and if you sum across all of the outages in the last six months this is the this is the opportunity cost that we've lost um, mm. like come to those kind of people with data like that's what a lot of people in those kind of roles that's what they operate on they'll if you give them data they should be able to make a reasonable decision and if like you don't have data that's good enough then you can you don't necessarily expect the decision to go your way like the product folks will have data on like how much value their each feature is bringing into the company because like they have to make a business case for the feature to be allowed to like command some engineering resources to uh to uh have that feature built mm, so, yeah. like if you can show that a feature like the feature that is trying the, the feature like taking the specific example we're talking about with the that like there is a feature that is being pushed towards production when the service is out of SLO and like the, the operations team would prefer that like developer effort was focused on improving reliability in the short term. Uh, like if you can show that the cost of an outage is going to be more damaging to the company than the cost, the, the value that the feature will bring over the next couple of weeks, then like it should be a relatively easy thing to decide that actually the right thing to do is pause the feature. But like you do, you do need to have good data, and like that can be hard to get. And the thing about the policy is like that's it's kind of a, a couple of steps down the line. You can measure your SLIs first. You can start gathering data on impact. You can do all of that before you really start creating the feedback loop. You only need really need the SLO policy when you want to have the data that you're gathering in your SLIs and the output of your SLOs actually modulate the engineering effort of your company. So mm. at that point, you should have got like at least three to six months worth of data to prove that your SLOs are working correctly. They're detecting outages. They are a good representation of your user experience. And like, and so when the SLO dips, you can show that users are getting hurt. And ideally, although this is really challenging in a lot of cases, ideally you can quantify that cost to the company like if the slo goes from 99.9 .9 to 98 like how much is that costing your company 
and if you can show that then you 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 can win many arguments but it's it's hard to do yeah i think that's um we are all, as as engineers we are almost used to that i mean if you want to pay down technical debt or if you want to do some you know something else related to architecture which is not feature development you always have to uh explain what is really the value of what i'm doing here because then may, maybe people just think you want to play around so it's yeah i think we as engineers we always have to uh yeah gather data to explain decision makers why the non-feature work is really necessary and what uh, value it brings to the business yeah i think and if you think about it it's, yeah. it's only fair like the product folks have to do this all the time to justify their features so it's only fair yeah. that if, you, if you want to say like i you want to say that something is more important than that feature work you you should have to go through the same effort right like it's only fair yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true i never thought about it that way but uh, yeah um yeah uh so one one part you 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 touched on is you know what what, what happens if i uh what do i have to do if i miss my slo so there is there is a there is a part in a narrow budget policy which is called the SLO miss policy. So what what am I going to do when if I you know my S I, I preached my SLO or uh, you know maybe only half of my error budget is uh, is left? So w what are the typical contents of that uh, SLO miss policy? Okay, it's um, wall of text time. <laughs> yeah, so um, this is. Like I, the the blog posts I wrote go into this in a lot more detail, but uh, I, I can I, I like to think of a policy like this as um, a series of triggers and escalating consequences. Like each trigger is a certain amount of error budget burnt, and the consequence is like a, a thing that changes the stance of your engineering organization towards doing more uh, reliability work. And the the content I can't give you. Uh, like specifics of contents because it's very it's very dependent on how a particular business wants to reallocate engineering time and change mm. behavior when a service is not reliable enough i don't think yeah. i don't think there's um any typical contents but like i can i can talk about the example i give in the blog post which is a lightly re-edited version of the things we did on the play team um and I, that i want to stress that this is just one example and the the it's the uh the consequences there and the thresholds we chose uh they are based on like the play's uh market environment and how the developers need to balance uh engineering time for features to uh engineering time for reliability and one of the things you want to keep in mind is that uh the Play Store is mostly accessed from mobile phones that are on like uh, wireless connections. So we could take a bit of a hit in terms of uh, availability and latency because the users, uh, like they, they were, they were always going to be expecting a, a lot more variability anyway because of the the mobile connections they were on, for example. So that gave us a little more leeway to be more flexible in terms of how we dealt with of reliability problems than, for example, web search might be, where everyone's on mm. a wide connection and expects results very, very quickly. 
So um, I've said already that uh, I think a good place to start is describing the conditions that trigger your first operational response. So the first point in your policy might be that your SR site reliability engineer or operations engineer gets paged when the one hour burn rate exceeds like 10, for example. So you've burned 10 times your error budget in the last hour or the 12-hour burn rate exceeds two, so you've burnt two, uh, two times your 12-hour um, error budget in the last 12 hours. Uh, uh, we, we didn't talk about burn rate, right? So what, what's, uh, maybe you can say a few words uh, what a burn rate is. Yes, of course, sorry, and that's, that's later, isn't it? <laughs> It's probably having written everything down. Um, yeah, so the the burn rate is um, is just like the multiple of your error budget you've burned over an alerting window. So, um, so your say you have a one hour measurement window. You're, so you're looking at the previous hours worth of data for your SLO, and you're seeing whether you were in or out. Like you're calculating the performance of the SLO over the um, the last hour. So. Um, a burn rate of one is you've burned exactly all of your error budget in that hour. So say for a 99, if you've got a thousand requests uh, in the last hour, I'm going to try and do maths. I'm sorry, it might go badly wrong. But like, <laughs> if you have a 3.9 service and you've served exactly 0.1% errors for the past hour, then your one hour burn rate is exactly one, right? So you, um, if you served 0.2% errors, that's double the, the error rate that is allowable by your SLO, then your burn rate is two. Yeah. And so if you've served yeah. 10% yeah. errors, then your burn rate is 10. And so essentially, um, and it's, it's a nice dimensionless way of looking at these things. And it, um, so that for a three nines SLO, if you serve 10, if you serve uh, 1% errors for an hour, then your burn one hour burn rate is 10. Um, and then you'd page somebody. Because over the if you kept serving one percent hours over twenty eight days, you'd be ten times over ten times out of your SLO, and you you want to yeah, stop doing yeah, something yeah. like that. Uh, is that enough for that? Yes. Yeah. 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 So um, the consequence of reaching this point where um, your your burn rates are significantly higher than they should be is that you know you're the responding engineer they get the page they're expected to figure out why the error budget burn is is elevated and take steps to bring the service back into SLO like you know do the usual kind of operations things like redirecting traffic that balances away from a bad cell or um rolling back a, the new release of the software that just happens to have gone out to a previous version they they should inform the development team that this, these things have happened, especially if rollbacks are required. But there's no expectation that the development team have to do anything at this point. Like this is normal operational work. The service is being brought back into SLO, uh, like by by doing standard operational things. But what happens if the standard operational things that you can do, like the usual playbooks, the usual uh, things, um, they don't bring the service back into SLO? A rollback doesn't fix it, or you can't roll back because for some um, reason you've got a dependency between a back end and a front end that has, has kind of locked you in this new stage. Um, and you need to get, like, as an operations engineer, you need to get assistance from the dev team, maybe because, like, there's um, significant code changes that are needed to fix whatever problem has happened. The consequence of reaching this point is that the dev development team have to start allocating some time to resolving the problem. And so the wording is quite vague here, I think, because you need to leave it up to your operations engineers to decide when it is appropriate to escalate to the, to the development team. 
Like that's one of their jobs is to recognize when the things they're doing are not solving the problem and they need to get someone who has deep understanding of the code, like the, the person who built the feature to come and like allocate some time to resolve the problem. So they might do this by ensuring that the, uh, there's a bug or a ticket that's assigned to like the engineer, uh, or they might like have your developers might have an on-call rotation that the the uh, operations team can es uh, escalate to. Or of course, if you're like you in a DevOps model and developing folks are the um, the operations folks too, then presumably the problem here is that the person responding isn't the person who is the most familiar with the feature and they need to just find the right person within the dev team. And so here the policy has just got to describe the escalation process and the expected time commitments each team is going to make. So like if you have a, a system where you page the development development on call rotation, then they should have an expected response time there and then they should be willing to like someone from their team, like there's usually going to be someone on call. So that, that the on-call person needs to be willing to drop whatever project work they're doing and prioritize the interrupt. Mm. So it's important at this point to note that um, both of these uh, kind of thresholds come before the services breached any of the long-term, the 28-day SLOs. And that's, that's kind of intentional. Like the goal here is to stop any kind of breach of the 28-day SLO from happening where possible. So you're doing lots of uh, you're doing lots of work ahead of time to make sure that overall the service stays with an SLO over the 28-day window. Of course, sometimes you'll go out of SLO across the 28-day window, and this is this is like the where most people think they need to start writing the policy. Like this is the the, the dividing line. Okay, we're out of SLO over, over the longer-term window. This is where the organization needs to start doing something more more serious about changing the reliability of a service. And as a, broadly speaking, while there are many ways you can get to this point, there's two extremes and you probably want to handle them differently in your policy. The first is like you have a single massive outage, say you're like hard down for four hours and everything is just like whole piles of badness, 100% errors for all of your users, and you just erase your 100 100% erase your 28-day error budget over the course of, you know, this very stressful four-hour period. And the second is when you're serving like 1.0, like you, we talked about the three nines things, and that needs 0.1% uh, errors across 28 days is like your error budget. So if you're serving 0.11 errors, percent errors over the course of the 28 days, then you're over the 28-day period, you will be out of SLO, but it's a very, very slow burn. And the first thing about the thing about the first kind of SLMS is that once your your terrible four hours is over, it's over. Like the, there's going to be a postmortem; it's inevitable. But that that ought to do a good job of uncovering the root cause and producing action items that are going to stop it from happening again. Because like that's the whole point of a postmortem: you've got to learn from your outage. In this case, um, the consequences should be that you you know you make sure the action items are completed and. Once they're completed, other engineering work can resume. But because the postmortem will have identified all of the things that caused the outage in the first place, or it should have done at least, you can generally uh, just return to normal without further escalation, further engineering time needed, because you should be relatively sure that this, the problem won't happen again. The second, the second kind of SLO miss is way more insidious because people tend not to take that kind of slow burn problem seriously. 
like it's oh it's just a tiny bit this tiny bit of errors it's not that big of a deal like four hour outage everyone being stressed things in the newspapers that focuses attention people take it seriously like serving a couple more errors than you should be that's everyone's like oh it's not a big deal my feature doesn't have to be stopped because of that does it and yeah that sounds very familiar <laughs> to me yeah and so in my experience is this kind of thing that really tests the commitment of a team towards their slos because it, it's so easy to just go oh we, we don't have to do this right now do we like i can get my feature out the door before i take you seriously so your policy has to call this scenario out specifically because um, it's where most of the friction will occur between keeping the service reliable and making your product improvements is where you'll call on that executive sponsor to enforce the policy the most because <clears throat> no one after a, a massive outage is going to say, well, my feature work has to take priority now because like that they're just going to get laughed out of the room. Um, but in uh, this case, they the they're going to have a reasonable argument to say, well, it's not that big of a deal, is it? And the policy needs to be enforced objectively here. Um, <clears throat> the way I've dealt with it in the blog post is I gate further escalation on the 28-day budget error budget being exhausted and um, the previous conditions having been satisfied for a week or more. So um, essentially, you've got to be... Uh, the you the development the operations team have got to be an escalating to development team to try and get things fixed for more than a week and the development team still haven't been able to fix like the underlying root cause of the the small extra errors for more than a week and at that point mm. like you you've spent your users have been slightly harmed by this for a month now a 28 day period and the development team have not been able to fix it in over a week at that point it's clear that there's some kind of significant ongoing problem it's not a big bang outage and it's going to need proper dedicated engineering time to fixing it and the policy at this point uses a consequence of pausing feature code reaching production to obtain this like it, it and this is something that google does a lot and it's it's pretty controversial outside i think of google like uh the way the reason we do this is um it aligns incentives well because the features can't go out until the services are reliable again so the engineering team there's no point in them working on even more features because none of them are going to reach production until the slo burn is fixed so having like a a, a team of a couple of engineers maybe uh you know a, a small group stop the feature work they're doing so that they can unblock everyone else on the team from um hmm. from uh this the kind of the release freeze is usually what happens like the like you'll go you'll go sit down with your your counterpart in engineering management and you'll say okay so you're out of slo your <clears throat> all of the features your folks are working on none of them are going to production until you're back in slo again so can we have like a couple of engineers to really dig into this problem take take this bug seriously and help us fix it and that usually works. Like, that's usually what happens within Google. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, if you have too many production problems, also outside of Google, um, it works. I would say. I mean, there are probably some companies who just say, "Oh, uh, you know, just build your service that it works one hundred percent of the time." But um, yeah, I think that's not uh, <laughs> that, that's not one hundred percent of the cases. Um, I'm just wondering. You know, I'm, I'm now writing my error budget policy. Um, 
And I'm on call, for example, even as an operations engineer, SRE, or, you know, in a, in a just in a normal, you build it, you run a team where the, uh, let's say the developers are also uh, involved in operations. And now I'm constantly, uh, you know, I'm in a rush to develop features. I don't make my, uh, my SLO. And actually the, 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 the error budget policy says, Oh, you really have to, um, you, you now really have to focus on reliability, but I get ignored all the time. You know, the, the escalation path doesn't work. Um, my product owner doesn't give me any time. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just drowning in operations work, even on the weekend or in the evening. So what can a what, what does a team do if, if the policy will be ignored? You know, what, what, what can you do as a, as a team if no one really listens to you? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you've got, I mean, the question to ask is you've written a policy. Why is it being ignored? Like when you write it, you get the, as I said, you've got to get that executive buy-in. They've got to sign off on the policy. And if they sign off on the policy, then you've got the signature to say, you said you would take this seriously. Please take this seriously. Like if you can't get, Mm. if you can't get that buy-in at the start, then it's probably not worth like pursuing the, the path of even writing the policy because like, you're not going to get it enforced. And if you no. like, it comes down to being able to make a good argument that what you like the the reliability work is valuable enough to the company that it should have engineering people working on it. Yeah, and if you can't make that argument, then maybe it's not that important. Um, and <clears throat> if you're in a situation where you're like you're working extra time at the weekends to try and keep a service reliable, then you you're kind of that's the hero complex, and that's it's kind of a failure mode of this. You shouldn't, as an individual, feel beholden to try and <clears throat> keep the service reliable in the face of a company that doesn't care. Like they don't, like companies don't care about you. Uh, this is like per, just personal opinion. And Google is, in fact, very good at mostly caring about its employees. But like the system of the world is that the, the company does things for the company, and um, you still need to look <laughs> after yourself. I think and yeah, yeah. if you if you go down the hero path you're not looking after yourself and that's something that is dangerous to do <laughs> I'm, sure yeah. I'm sure the press folks will make me cut that bit <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah another reason um a narrow budget policy uh could be ignored is that it was just wrong you know my my we can actually live with all that problems because no one really complains. Uh, that would be the time to adjust the SLOs and the error budget policy. Is that the correct uh, thinking? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely possible. Um, and that's why I say you need the data, right? Like your SLOs don't operate in a vacuum. The the feedback loop that you sh- you're trying to uh, create here you need some external source of information that your users are happy or unhappy so that you can refine your SLOs. Um, 
you need to so like we talked before about you know looking at things like twitter looking at your support support calls looking at your um forums things like that um so if you have a big dip in your slos but you don't see increased support calls you don't see sadness on twitter then did that slo really detect a problem like you need to, you need to have some external thing to validate that your slos are actually detecting real problems and if you can like mm. if you can tie it to increased in support increases in support costs increases in forum posts increases in like sadness on twitter then you can say to like that that's the kind of data that makes your policy look valid in the eyes of like your local executive um you can say to them well like uh you know we we served five percent errors for an hour here and look at all the complaints on twitter this is this is the user trust that that burnt so we need to have things that allow us to stop doing that. I mean, I need I need two engineers for a week to fix the bug that caused this to happen, so it doesn't happen again in the future. And that is a useful and valuable thing for these people to be doing because this is the user trust that we burnt, and we don't want to do that again. Yeah. Um, do you do you have something? Do you have a recommendation that um, that I should reconsider my SLOs and my error budget policy on a um, yeah on a on a regular schedule. Yes, I think that's that's the most important thing. Like if you if you're just waiting for a sign that your SLOs are wrong, then that may take a long time to appear. Like you may you may not even be collecting data such that you can see that they're in the wrong place. You know you you might be blind to problems that are really there because you know your SLOs are all green, but your users are still unhappy. So it's important to really review SLO performance on a regular basis. I think um, we usually recommend that you do this at least once a year. You, you know, you look at your SLO performance, you look at your other sources of user impact, you look at your postmortems, you look at all of this holistically and try and see if there are patterns, try and see if there's any mismatches, like see if one source of data is telling you one thing and another source of data is telling you another thing and then trying to dig into why there's a disagreement. You, I, you do this at least once a year, and ideally more frequently. Like six months is not a bad kind of time schedule. If if your SLOs are new and you're just starting out on this, then looking at every one month or three months is good because a short, mm. shorter iteration period means that you have um, you're more likely to kind of converge on good SLOs and good data more quickly. Uh, <clears throat> one good trigger, like if you have a massive outage that's a good time to do a review too. Like if you have <laughs> one of the, one of those terrible four hour periods where like all of your user queries are going into dev null and you really didn't want that. Um, mm. At that point, you should see obvious signs in your other sources that users were discontented at that point. And that's, that's very valuable, very, very valuable data. Um, so, when you're conducting the review, the, as I said, you're looking for these mismatches. You're looking for disagreement between like your sources of data, uh, <clears throat> and the, what you're trying to do with the output of this is um, changes to your SLOs. So, like if you're if you have a huge outage in the last quarter, but you didn't see any dips in your SLOs, then your SLOs are probably wrong. You're, measure, you're either measuring the wrong thing, your targets aren't strict enough. Like if your SLOs indicated your service was unreliable, but you can't find any evidence of this in your user impact, then your targets might be too strict. Or again, you might be you might be measuring something that you thought your users cared about, but it turns out they they really didn't. 
Mm. And as I said, you, you, you probably won't get things right the first time. So doing these things more frequently when you've got new SLOs is a good thing to do. And, um, the the reason we say that you have to do this on a regular basis, even if you think things are you think things are good, like you say, say you've gone through um, you've gone through this process, you've ratcheted, you've kind of dialed in your SLOs, you've ratcheted down from doing it every one month to every three months to every six months, but you still need to do it on a yearly basis because over over the course of a year, your service can change, you'll release new features, you'll get new users, and um, you'll. Uh, you know, you may even retire some things and turn turn some stuff down, or mostly turn some stuff down. And some of these changes will mean that your SLOs change, and your patterns of user behavior change, and your users' expectations change. And you don't want to miss those. Hmm. Oh. Um. So final final question on uh, on the error budget policies. Um. Would you recommend to have one error budget error budget policy which uh, rules everything, you know, across uh, the organization or across a certain product group, or maybe have an error budget policy per service, you know? And so, how 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 fine grained should it be? One error budget policy to rule them all, signed off by the Eye of Sauron himself. <laughs> <clears throat> signed off by <laughs> the Eye of Sauron himself. Okay. <laughs> um, I think usually, usually one shared policy is enough. Like the the consistency is quite valuable here. Like everyone knows what to expect, and you can publish it mm. like in a public place for the, the whole the whole company to see, and every everyone has the same expectations, which is valuable. But um, the only reason you might want to have different policies, I think, is uh, you say you have different parts of a large organization that have very different trade offs they need to make on the kind of reliability engineering spectrum. So like you've got, we talked about authentication earlier. Um, and that one has, it usually has uh, pretty high reliability requirements because it underpins a lot of the other parts of the organization. And like core infrastructure pieces like that often have at least one, maybe even two extra nines of reliability needed versus like something that's, uh, you know, only serving a subset of your users in a subset of like, locations and isn't doing something that's critical in the like any critical user serving path and so the um often the differing slo goals kind of deal with this quite nicely so like you can say say, say your authentication service has five nines a five nines requirement and like your random front-end job that's only serving like a fraction of your users has three nines or two and a half nines they they will still burn error budget in the same way and like that kind of normalizes all of it and so even in that case you don't need a particularly different policy mm. but sometimes say like you've got to jump on uh you've got to jump on periods of unreliability with more like more of a shift towards like fixing the problems as opposed to like uh, kind of more laissez-faire attitude of our oh, way can we can just leave it for a bit and um like that's going to be more of a business decision a market decision like um you may need to move fast and break things if like your facebook for example and that's the market you're in whereas if you're providing banking services then people are going to be pretty angry if you break things so <laughs> You have to do things differently. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Cool. Ähm, ja, last, let's say the last uh, chapter or last part, mhm. ähm, alerting. So, ideally I want to get warned because uh, before things get uh, critical and because then I, you know, I can react and solve problems as long as they are uh, still small. Yeah, right? I agree. Yeah, this is kind of a, a big thing. And I think that um, SLO-based alerting, I think this can replace most or even all of your previous service alerts. At, and the caveat here is as long as that you are relatively confident that your SLOs capture the performance of your service from your user's perspective. Like, you've got to have gone through the... Um, the kind of iteration process that I was talking about just now and be relatively sure that you have a high signal to noise ratio from like any periods where you're burning error budget. So you, you know that they correlate well to periods where your users are actually being harmed. Um, if you've got that, and then I think you can throw away a lot of your other alerts. And I know that's going to sound <laughs> scary to a lot of people, but it, you know, if you think about it, I think it makes sense. Like if you, if you've got good coverage of all your user interactions and your metrics tell you when your users are not interacting successfully with your service and you know that the correlation is good, why do you need to worry about anything else? Like your users, as I said before, they don't care about which endpoint they're hitting. They don't care that your CPU utilization is high. They don't care about your server's load average. As long as the interactions they have with your service are meeting their expectations, they are happy. And so if you're measuring those interactions well, you don't need much else. And no. again, I, yeah, I want to stress here that um, that doesn't mean you throw away all your metrics. That means you can throw away the alerts, but the underlying metrics are still very useful. No. Yeah, I mean, there are probably some exceptions, right? So uh, if I run out of disk space or something like that, um, yeah. that's something an SFO probably doesn't catch or some background job is not working. Well, I... I mean, at some point, it has to have an impact on the user, or why do you care? Like, if you run out of disk space, presumably that's going to manifest itself in users not being able to upload things correctly or something like that, or your service just 100% throwing errors because it can't write its logs anymore. And, like, yeah. those are the things that your users actually care about. They don't care that it's disk space that is causing that. They just see the 500 error, like, ah, I'm angry now. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, um, that if your SLOs are capturing the user experience, they will see this. Like, I, disk space is an interesting one, though, and like, um, because uh, it's a problem that you can detect in advance or predict in advance. Um, so I, I like I like it as an, an as an example because I think it's quite illuminating because it's it's hard to apply SLO methodology to things like disk utilization. Or other quotas because they're they're different to like serving errors because the quota exhaustion tends to act like a step function when you've got disk space free you've got quota to spare your service is functioning normally but when you run out suddenly bam you're burning a lot of error budget very quickly and what's more this this should be an avoidable situation so you've got to just go and like request a quota increase or go buy more disks or something like that and we've got to do this far enough in advance that you don't run out of quota so like you should be able mm. to predict and avoid the outage and but there are still a lot of similarities when it comes to detecting and responding to this avoidable situation in time like the you can like most alerts you can set a static threshold like you go above 80 percent disk utilization you go ask someone to buy another disk and this works well enough for the most part but just like um 
static th threshold alerting for outages, it's got it's got those same drawbacks. If you have a, a little spike in disk usage, like say you've got a, a cron job that runs once an hour and then generates a bunch of disk usage and then cleans up after itself. If you go over 1% over your threshold for five minutes, you get paged by another disk, even though that's maybe not necessary at this point in time. So um, I, I can talk about it in a little aside. I've, been, I've got an experiment with um, trying to create SLIs from quotas if you're interested in hearing about it. Okay. okay. Yeah. And so the idea is that instead of alerting when your utilization goes over some fraction of a limit, so you, you hit that 80% threshold of disk usage and get you fire an alert to have someone do something, you treat um, usage above some fraction of your limit as an error budget. So let's take this disk usage as a concrete example. Say you've got a terabyte of disk quota. <coughs> Sorry, as, as I said earlier, this is this is a hard limit. You hit that terabyte of disk quota, all your writes fail, and your system goes down. If you say you set your this arbitrary threshold below this hard limit as a soft limit, say like 80% or 90%, then you can create an SLI from the difference between these two limits. You can then plug this into the SLI equation that we talk about in the art of SLOs by saying that your, your valid bytes are the total buffer space between your soft and hard limit, and the good bytes is the amount of buffer space you have remaining. Oh, so okay. this, this yeah. works like an SLI because when you're under your soft limit, your SLI is 100%, everything is good. When you've consumed the entire buffer, your SLI is at 0%, everything is bad. And, and so you, if you set an SLO goal of, say, 99% or 95% for this SLI, you're effectively saying that you're okay with using, on average, 1% or 5% of buffer at steady state across your SLO window. More than, hmm. than that, we'll start burning your error budget, and then you can plug this into burn rate alerting, and everything will just work. Yeah, sounds cool. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, we didn't actually. Uh, we, we skipped forward over the actually talking about burn rate alerting, though. I think that's part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Before we talk about the burn rate um, of uh, of alerting, I yeah, I'm just wondering how do I find the right thresholds for alerting if my SLOs are in danger? That seems to me, you know, finding the right threshold seems to be very difficult, uh, at least for me. Yeah, I mean, so the the other thing about having static thresholds is that you need to tune them all the time, depending on how the perform your service is performing, and um, that's a source of operational load that you don't really need. It can be frustrating, and knowing whether you've got it right is hard until you have an outage, and then you you try and tune for what you have. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of good advice on building alerts based on SLOs uh, in the SRE workbook, and you can find that freely online at google.com/sre. That's the one piece of advertising that I'll put in this working for advertising company. <clears throat> the principle behind this kind of alert is to instead of like notifying someone when you go above a static threshold, you notify someone when you've burnt some portion of your error budget. You've used up some portion of your error budget in a short period of time. And I mean, you, don't, you can't completely get away from the process of iteration of finding the right thresholds because it's dependent on your business requirements for reliability. But um, there's a good starting point suggested by the workbook that says, you should fire an alert when um, you've burned through around 2% of your 28-day error budget in an hour, or 5% in six hours. Mm. And <clears throat> so if you think about it, 
like you probably aren't going to have hopefully aren't going to have um more than say 14 of these uh oh, hang on so two percent would give you the ability to do this what, 50 times in 28 days if you if you have 50 hours where you burn two percent of your error budget then you're going to be out of SLO over the over the 28 days so you can roughly do that roughly twice a day um yeah, th that makes sense. I'm trying to do math. Yeah. Terrible idea. <clears throat> so, <laughs> uh, so you can do that. You can do that roughly twice a day in your 28 days, and you're you're going to be out of SLO a bit. So um, that that's I think where the rationale behind the two percent number comes from. Uh, you're also going to need another threshold to catch persistent low level rates of errors. Um, so. I think that for that one, it recommends creating a ticket if 10% of your budget is burned over three days, and that's just slightly below. So you know, um, if you you have uh, you can over each three day period, you burn 10% of your budget, you're going to be roughly at your SLO. Uh, you're going to have roughly burned all of your error budget over the 28 day period. <clears throat> uh, and th these are great places to start because you know that you're defending. Um, the 28-day SLO effectively by t getting someone to do something at this point for the reasons I just went into. So the, the, the problem with implementing alerting in this fashion is that you've got to be able to look back over 28 days worth of performance history to figure out what 2% of your 28-day error budget is. And this can be quite difficult depending on how you're measuring and storing the data. It can be quite an expensive query to run every minute to go, okay, so how's things over the last 28 days yeah. And the, the, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. I, I just wanted to uh, to say that, um, I, uh, for example, if you use an, an APM tool, application performance management tool, which is not only you know looking at performance in terms of latency, but also uh, looking at uh, availability, the tools I know they they basically cannot do that. You know, you, 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 you cannot say, uh, alert me based on, uh, a burn rate, uh, of so and so much, uh, percent over the last two days because they, they can only run queries about the last 30 minutes, for example. It's just not possible to do, uh, like, for example, in Prometheus, you can do more, but a lot of tools just don't allow me to query, to, to make this kind of expensive query. Well, um, thirty minutes of history is not enough for anybody, in my opinion. I mean, it, 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 if you're debugging a problem, then maybe that's enough. Like, it, <clears throat> I think those those are more for developers to really understand the performance of their like their application in like the short term when they're when they're building new features and things, rather than trying to do operations work with it. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to do any kind of operations work with only thirty minutes of monitoring data. That would make me very sad. No, I mean, it's uh, it's not only, uh, I'm not saying 30 minutes monitoring data. So those tools have more than a month's monitoring data, maybe two months, three months monitoring data, but you cannot run a, a query on on those 30 days, for example. Oh, okay. uh, so the, it's, it's like a, they don't have a query language. You can just, you know, click your alerts. You can just click alerts uh, um, and... It doesn't allow you to select more than 
30 minutes, for example, as you know, how far you can look at errors, for example. You cannot say, um, alert me if the last 10 days have burned so and so many percent of, of the error budget. You can only say, alert me if we burned so and so many percent over the last 30 minutes sure. uh, or hour. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've not really had used these the application performance monitoring uh, packages. I've got to admit I'm unfamiliar yeah. with them as a concept generally. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I, even when you're working with things like Prometheus, like uh, it can be difficult to do queries over like months of data. Um, and the way that the way that the workbook recommends to deal with this kind of problem is to calculate something called a burn rate, which we've kind of touched on before, like I explained mm. what it was a bit. So um, <clears throat> with some maths that I'm not going to get into here because like I've tried to do maths already and it's not been the most enthralling thing for your listeners to listen to as I stare off into space and don't say anything. Um, the workbook can sh shows that an hour, if you have a one hour burn rate of 14.4, where you've served 14.4 times as many errors in the past hour as your SLO permits. This is the same as burning 2% of a 30-day error budget. And the workbook uses 38, 30 days rather than 28 days because it does. Um, like we, uh, we settled on 28 days as a, as a thing to recommend to people after the workbook was published. It's, you know, there's a process of iteration, as always. Mm. Mm. The equivalent burn rate for a 2% threshold uh, of an SLO measured over 28 days is 13.44. I, I conveniently did the math ahead of time for that one. Um, <laughs> so the the idea there is that you, you if you use that threshold, you're getting your 2% of your 28-day error budget over the hour, and you're essentially just translating it to an hour, an SLO, uh, an SLO window of an hour, and saying, okay, well, I know that the... 28 error, but eight, 28 day error budget is this much. So, it, like over the course of an hour, I'm allowed to burn this much error budget. The reason for taking this approach, like the using these burn rate alerts, uh, is that the uh, alerting scales with the both severity of the outage and the tightness of the SLO goal. So, you it takes away two of the tuning dimensions from setting a static threshold. So, if you're hard down serving 100% errors, you're going to hit that 14.4% times burn rate threshold and page someone in just a just a minute or two um, and again as I said it scales it scales with both uh, the severity outage and the times the SLO goal so um, if you're serving 100% errors if your SLO goal is five nines then you're going to page basically instantly if your SLO mm -hmm. goal is just one nine you're going to take a lot longer to page because you have much more error budget to burn yeah uh and on the other hand, if you're only just burning off error budget to be out of SLO over your entire measurement window, you're going to get a ticket after three days and someone can do something about it because you've still got plenty of time to deal with it whenever it's convenient. Because of this kind of scaling, you don't have to worry so much about finding the right thresholds or measurement windows that balance the sensitivity to outage with the high signal-to-noise ratio because like the, these two scaling dimensions take care of a lot of the problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have here one one final question, and I believe uh, you basically answered it already. Yeah, um, kind of and that is uh, that uh, yeah, the threshold I have uh, doesn't tell me how fast my error budget is shrinking. Yeah, um, but if 
you know, if I look at what you've said, I probably, um, yeah, I could also combine um, those alerts, right? So I have an alert which looks at a burn rate over the last 10 minutes, a burn rate over the last hour, a burn rate over the last day, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we tend to do that at Google, like we have the the uh, an SLO alert based on the one hour burn rate, an SLO alert based on the twelve hour burn rate, and um, a ticket alert that file, files a bug based on a week uh, the burn rate over a week, and <clears throat> that it works well. the The thing you need to have is some uh, alert suppression. So, if the one hour alert is fired, then when the 12 hour alert inevitably also fires, you don't need to page the person again because they're probably do so doing something about it. Mm. Uh, that's the, the, the only thing I will say that like, that's proven to be a source of additional noise for us is like, I, you know, the, you have a big outage, the one hour alert fires because like, it's the fastest response thing. But as soon as like you're just getting into working on the problem and then your pager goes off again because it's saying, Hey, your service is out. <laughs> out of SLO for, for 12 hours as well. Like, thank you. I knew this. Uh, and like alert suppression is something you have to have built into your alerting system. And that's like, it can be difficult if you don't have that to implement it. Uh, yeah. Then it's getting, you get alert fatigue. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So I do not have uh, any question left. Yeah, I mean, we just overall, we only talked three hours or something like that, three and a half hours. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I will put all the, the things you mentioned, uh, all the parts from the SIE workbook, your blog posts, uh, the ACMQ article and stuff like that. I will put all that in the, in the show notes, uh, for listeners who, you know, sometimes when we had the math, you know, it's maybe hard to follow in, uh, in the podcast. We also have a show, um, not show notes. We also have show notes, of course, but we have a transcript yes. where, um, where basically you can read everything slowly and reiterate. Yeah. Um, Alex, I am super happy, uh, for this, uh, you know, for those uh, three hours wow. uh, of, or more than three hours of conversation. Um, do you have, I, I think we touched a lot of stuff, uh, I just cannot believe that I forgot to ask something important, but maybe, maybe that you, you think I forgot to ask something uh, as a, let's see. I, um, no, I think we'd like, there are a few bits we skipped over, but God, I, I wrote so much because, you know, I, I like the subject and I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to talk about these things. I think it's a, an important thing to get into people's heads and like, it's, the the key things I think to reiterate are like focus on the user's experience and try and measure that as quickly as closely as possible and um, don't be afraid to just set something up quickly and start measuring things before you have confidence that what you're doing is good because the way to get confidence that what you're doing is good is to start and then see how bad it is and try and make it better. <laughs> Yeah, a, yeah. a quote that I really like from um, Adventure Time with Finn and Jake, which is a kids' cartoon, and I, I'm terrible. I like watching kids' cartoons. And there's um, Jake says, "Sucking at something is the first step on the road to being good at something." And like, it's fundamentally important thing that everyone needs to know in their lives. Like, you have to be bad at something first, and so yeah, just start. yeah. I mean, 
a previous guest, uh, Philippe Kruchten, he, um, you know, he, his answer to that is always, yeah, uh, I mean, incremental and iterative software development. <laughs> so uh, I think that's, uh, but it's that's not, all, that also applies here, right? So it's not just software development, but it's literally everything in life. <laughs> and that's one, yeah, of, one yeah, of the yeah, reasons that's like, because it, um, kid, Pete, especially children don't get told this enough like there's the expectation that like just be good at stuff right but i've got kids myself and like letting them you know go through that process of iteration is hard for them because they they don't like getting things wrong and it, it can be a very frustrating experience but like it's getting helping them understand that you know that's just how life is is important yeah yeah Alrighty, cool Thank you very much. And uh, also thank you to our listeners for listening those three hours. All those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Thank bye you bye. Very much again for the experience. It's been a great time. Thank you. Mm-hmm.